Well, good morning, Christ City. Welcome to our new series, our new Advent series. And as I introduce this series for you, in the past, I've usually had to work a little bit hard to create some anticipation and some hopefulness and the feeling for hopefulness as we begin an Advent series. But today, it takes approximately uh, zero effort on my part to convince you that we have great need of hope. As we begin our Advent series right now, which is called A Weary World Rejoices, I just want to take all of 2020 and use that as my introduction to create longing for the coming of Jesus. See, I don't remember ever in my life being so excited for Advent season. It's probably just because I personally feel needy and weary right now. and I'm just ready to hear all about Jesus. Friends, we need this. We need this series. We need this season. We need in our disappointments and our grief and our suffering and our loneliness and our longings to turn all of our experiences of 2020, what's gone before, to turn them towards Jesus in hope and in worship. So what we want to be doing this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, to see the incredible promises of peace that God made to a world mired in death in darkness and in sin. And it's my prayer that this text will lead us to hope rightly in Jesus and in our own lives. And not just to have an empty hope of some kind, maybe a fabricated hope to get us going from this moment to the next, but a real, lasting, eternal hope that is as certain as the promises of God for us and Jesus our Savior. So we're going to turn right now and jump into the text. And as we do so, we're going to look at the context of hope, the promise of peace, and the dawning of the light. So consider first with me our first point, the context of hope, and look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Isaiah writes this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What these verses show us is that the backdrop of this incredibly famous promise in Scripture is darkness. It's suffering. Someone was, according to verse 1, in anguish. Someone was, according to verse 2, in darkness and even under the contempt of of God. Well, who was that? Well, just think back for a moment. We, we just came from our series in Lamentations where the author vividly described the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of God's people in 587 BC. But long before the Babylonian conquest and captivity of the southern kingdom, there was the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And all this talk about northern and southern kingdoms is probably confusing to you, to some degree, at least to some of you. And so let me give you a little bit of history. See, what had happened to God's people, Israel, was this. After King David, the great famous king of the Bible, after he had brought unity and prosperity to Israel, later on, his grandson, King Rehoboam, brought division. There was civil war, and the kingdom divided. There were ten kingdoms that were now up in the north, and then there were two kingdoms that were down in the south. So at the time of Isaiah's writing here, this is what was going on. And this is important for us to understand since 
the places and the names that he uh, references in verse 1, Naphtali and Zebulun, were two of the tribes of that northern kingdom. And in fact, they were the two tribes that when the Assyria conquest would come in and begin, there would be the, the two tribes that Assyria would first trample on their way to destroy the northern kingdom. So right here, even before it happens, what God is doing, he's speaking a word of hope to a people who are about to experience judgment. Judgment was coming, darkness was reality because of sin, and judgment was on its way, but there would be hope, there would be great joy, and there would be light. Now, why would God do this? It's interesting that he spoke these prophecies, that Isaiah spoke these prophecies before any of these things happened. Well, the essence of Isaiah's message in the book of Isaiah was this. It was that judgment is coming. It is going to happen. God had warned again and again and again through his prophets, but the sin of the people was great. And God promised to reduce Israel because of their sin down to a holy remnant down to a seed, and from that seed, God would produce a new and gloriously thriving people. He would bring salvation not just for Israel, but for the nations, and even through them, through the entire world. And there is a point in speaking all of this to the people at the time that Isaiah wrote. It wasn't just to make them feel miserable. No, God desired them to repent of their sin to turn away from the things that they were pursuing that could never satisfy, and to put their hope, regardless of their circumstances, in him, to trust in him for true and flourishing life. Even as Isaiah 55 says much later on, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And it's in this context that Isaiah gives this remarkable promise of life and of blessing, of light coming to the people that experience darkness. And when that day would come, he describes what would happen in verse 3. He said, <clears throat> as if, and he describes it as if it had already happened. He said this, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. See, Isaiah looks forward to a time on the other side of judgment, to the time of blessing and salvation. And he describes it as a time of this significant rejoicing of God's people. Now, as many of you guys know, I really, really enjoy uh, reading to my children. I enjoy reading to my kids. Now, recently I've been reading uh, a series of books with my son that describe the westward migration that happened in the United States of America in the mid-1800s. And the way that these settlers would come and they'd, they'd leave everything behind and at great risk to their personal finances and to their lives, they would begin to live in a shack of some sort that they would build and survive a hard winter in a place like the Dakotas, or I guess in our situation in Canada up in Manitoba and try to survive and to take the, the infertile, hard prairie ground and to turn it into abundant harvests and crops a couple of years later. They went from near starvation to abundance when those crops finally would take place and they would reap the riches of that soil. For agrarian Israelites, it wasn't so different. The harvest was a time of unparalleled rejoicing and celebrating as you moved to this time of feasting and abundance when you reaped all the hard work and all the labor that had gone before. Payday was here. 
And that's how Isaiah describes the arrival of the promised king. He says it would be more joyful than their most joyful seasons of prosperity and blessing. Why? Well, because he was coming, not just to bring prosperity, but to bring an end to war and to judgment and to oppression. Look at verses 4 to 5. Isaiah says this, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Remember, Isaiah was prophesying during a time of accelerating national and international conflict. Soon, the superpower of Assyria would rush in like a river and destroy the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And then not long after that, in 586 BC, the southern kingdom would fall as well. And not long after that, a man would sit down and would write about the horrors of war, the horrors of sin, the horrors of God's judgment through Babylon in the book of Lamentations. But here, before any of those things had yet happened, God promises future peace. He promises that he would bring salvation on the other side of judgment, a time when soldiers' boots and the rods of oppressors and bloodstained garments would finally be burned forever. But how will this happen? What would God do? Would he send an army? Would he raise up powerful leaders? No. Verse 6 is surprising. He says this. He says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. See, the hopes for light at the end of the tunnel of human darkness and rebellion and sin and its consequences is a baby. It's not what I would expect. But even more surprising than the fact that it was this hope that was in the baby is actually the name that was given to this child. For Hebrew culture, your name was hugely significant. It carried weight and meaning, and even it would encapsulate often the whole essence of your life and your mission in life. I can show you a couple examples of this. Isaiah, as one example, it means Yahweh saves. And the essence of his message was that through judgment, Yahweh would indeed save his people. Joshua is another example. He was the one who brought Israel into the promised land that God had given to them long before. And his name meant salvation. Solomon, who's the king, the son of David, who brought Israel to the height of their prosperity, his name means the peaceful one. But look at this. The name of the child who is to be born, the name that Jesus is given here is unlike any others. Look at verse 6. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Someone who counsels with wisdom and power and unparalleled insight. His name would be Mighty God. Not just a human king, but Mighty God. Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. 
Isaiah prophesied that he was coming. That he was coming to fulfill the hopes of a weary world. Let's look at the astounding promises of verse 7. He kept on writing, he said, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Friends, maybe you've been longing for peace. Maybe you've been longing in a tumultuous year for justice. Maybe you long for the day when evil will finally be punished and those who are oppressed will be rescued and vindicated. Maybe you long for yourselves for a peace that would rule you and even rule your own soul so that finally you would behave as a person of peace in your own family, with your roommates, so that your home will be full of love and peace. Maybe you long for a peace that will lead to flourishing for your city. I know I do. And Isaiah makes a promise. He says, a king is coming. He prophesies that this king is bringing peace, lasting peace. A child would be born Jesus, mighty God, the son of David. So the promise that Isaiah made here, the prophecy that, that he made was that God himself would come to earth to be born as a baby in order to right the world's wrongs. We're talking about the incarnation. C.S. Lewis, he once called the incarnation, he called it the grand miracle. He went on to write when he talked about the grand miracle, he said the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. That's a pretty lofty claim, isn't it? The central miracle, he says, is the incarnation. I agree with that. I think it's true. But why is it the central miracle? Well, I think because of this. It's because all of our salvation, our freedom from sin, our life with Jesus, the promise of our future resurrection with him to glory, the promise that this whole world will one day through Jesus be filled up to the brim with life and with blessing and the goodness and the presence of God. All of those promises, all of those future hopes that we have in Jesus, they have a beginning point. So the first act of our salvation in God was that he came, that God himself was born as a baby. For unto us a child is born. To quote Lewis again, he says this, In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, to the very roots and seabed of the embryonic human nature that he had created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness and glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, 
down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they have come up into the light. Down below where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. You see, down into the depths of our suffering and sin, Jesus descended. But his birth was only the beginning of that descent. The muck and the ooze that he descended into led him to be tortured and to be dehumanized. God descended to humanity only to descend further still as he was dehumanized by humanity, slaughtered and killed in the place of sin and prison humans that he came to save. And friends, we need to realize that according to Lewis, according to the Bible and the words that Lewis used, we are the precious things that Jesus came to save. We are the objects of his love and his desire that he brings with him up through his resurrection and into his glorious light. You see, the message of Isaiah of God's judgment and salvation shows us a God who is holy and just, who punishes sin, but who is also infinitely humble. A God who willingly gives up his high position and every blessing that he deserves and had in himself in order to come and to rescue us. A God who pursues us in the ugliness of our sin in order to make us beautiful by his love. And just as Isaiah prophesied, 730 years later, Jesus came. Consider our last point with me, the dawning of the light. See, in Matthew 4, 12 to 14, Matthew writes that it was the people who were first exiled. It was the people who were first exiled, Zebulun and Naphtali, who would be the ones who would first hear the feet of God incarnate walking in their streets and calling them to receive the life that he offered. Matthew 4, 12 to 14, talks about the fulfillment of this prophecy. As we read, And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went, and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. See, according to prophecy, Jesus was born. He lived. He died. The light came into the darkness. He was raised from death as a conqueror of sin and Satan and death. And yet, when we hear passages, I think, today, passages like Isaiah 9, we wrestle with them. I think we're right to do so. We wrestle with them because, let's be honest, it's 2020, and we are still longing for the peace that this passage talks about. We wonder to ourselves, is the prophecy of Isaiah 9 really fulfilled? Well, friends, the answer is yes and no. I want to show you what I mean through a story, though. See, in World War I, there was an incredible moment that happened five months into the war. This moment was called the Christmas Truce of 1914. 
what happened is that soldiers described seeing Germans across no man land hoist up a Christmas tree on top of uh, the, the tops of their trenches. And they described the way they heard them begin to sing Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht. And they recognized the melody as Silent Night. And as they recognized the melody, British soldiers, they soon joined in. And in fact, some of them bravely and timidly climbed out out of their trenches, worried about a trap, but climbing still and moving through no man's land till they were shaking hands with their enemies, sharing food, exchanging gifts, burying their dead and playing soccer and singing these words. Silent night, holy night. Son of God loves pure light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. It's a beautiful story. It's a true story. But in many ways, it's a story that's easy for us to be cynical about, isn't it? Because after Christmas Day, the fighting resumed on the 26th of December. So is that it? Is that all that Isaiah's prophecy came to do? No. That isn't all there was to this prophecy. We hope and we long for so much more than this. See, what Isaiah saw far off as a prophecy that was contained in seven beautiful and short verses, we experience not as a distinct moment in history, but as a whole age that was inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus and that is awaiting fulfillment when he returns again. And we live now in the tension of the times between the two comings of Jesus. And the Christmas truce that we just talked about, it only happened because Jesus did, in fact, come the first time. But we hope for the time when all things will finally be made right forever when Jesus comes again. This hope isn't wishful thinking. Because what we see in Jesus is that God is deeply committed, personally committed, to fulfilling every promise that he makes. In the words of Isaiah 9, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, the word zeal in the context of this future promise, it speaks of the passionate, protecting, and preserving love of an ancient father. He uses everything at his disposal as the head of his household to bless and to see his loved ones flourish. Zeal speaks of the color change that happens to your face when you're filled with intense emotions to protect and to guard and to preserve. To change C.S. Lewis's illustration slightly, Zeal speaks of the father standing at the cliff's edge and seeing his children drowning in the depths. Emotion floods his face and his heart throbs as he determines with all the power that he has to rescue no matter what the cost will be to himself. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Jesus came, and he is coming again. He's a king who came in peace, bringing peace to sinful men so we could be reconciled to God. He's a king who's bringing peace as he works to fill his church with love 
and with peace as we extend his mission and his message to those around us. That sinners can be reconciled with God. That love can be poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given us to radically change who we are today as we live by his life. And he is a king who will one day finally return to establish peace everywhere. One day the prophecy of Isaiah 9 will finally be fulfilled and Jesus will assert his gloriously good rule over every inch of this universe for all to see. Not just a profound and beautiful peace for one day in no man's land, but an eternal peace in his kingdom that will never end, where death and mourning and evil are eradicated forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So friends, in conclusion, the great challenge Isaiah made to the people he prophesied to is the same challenge that we need to hear. And the challenge is this. And the question is this. What are we hoping in? I've asked this question so many times here at Christ City Church, but it's maybe the most important question for us in our lives. What are we hoping in? See, this world around us, it recognizes everywhere the need for hope. In fact, there's even a a, a new form of psychology and therapy that's called hope therapy, offering strategies to keep hope in your life, to maintain purpose, and to continue a reason for living. But friends, our hope is so much greater than any other hope. Our hope is more than a hope in a vaccine. Our hope is more than that we'll see our family members at Christmas time. Our hope is more than that we will achieve our next goal that we set out for ourselves. Our hope is that because Jesus first came, God is with us. And that he will never leave us or forsake us. That he is working within us to produce life by his spirit. And that one day soon, Jesus will return again to make all things well. When death is gone forever, when sin within us is conquered completely, and we dwell in the presence of God, our Savior. Live for that hope. Friends, live for that hope. Let this season be a time when you examine your lives and you look at what are the things that you are trusting in and hoping in. And when you turn from those things, turn away from them towards God to trust in him, to pursue him, to know his love in a greater way. And today, in hope, as you experience the joy of Advent, I'd encourage you to share your hope with others. Because friends, your neighbors don't have this hope. Friends, right now is a time when the people around us are on edge just like we feel on edge. It's a time when people feel the profound need for peace that is all around. So would you turn at the prophecy in Isaiah 9? Would you be like Jesus? He went first to the north, to Galilee of the nations, to bring the message of peace, the message of a king who is coming to those around you. Will you share with them the hope that you found in Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would, this season, just profoundly affect us with your peace, with the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, would you bring comfort to our weary souls? Would you cause us to rejoice in Jesus? 
And Lord, would you cause us to be those who eagerly look for ways to share the hope that we have with our friends, with our neighbors, and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.